answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Father, give us insight into uh, this story and remind us again of the precious truths presented here. And teach us, Lord, um, how this story relates to human life and human life in a fallen world. We would pray that as Christians we might be able to proclaim the whole gospel, the whole story of Jesus' life, with a certain knowledge that all of these things are so and that it's graciousness on your part to give us your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, during this month, we've been looking at the Incarnation as our basic thrust or basic theme or basic concern of these messages during Advent. And so a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the fact of the Incarnation, how the Word became flesh. And then last Sunday, we looked at the, the reason for the, in, the Incarnation, why did God become man? And there we were looking at uh, Matthew's Gospel and the statement that... Uh, Jesus became man, God became man in order to save his people from their sins. And this morning we're going to be looking at how did that happen? What was the means of the incarnation? And that leads us to consider the virgin birth. I want to begin by pointing out something, though, that the kind of birth that we're talking about here, the virgin birth, has its own background and backstory. We're often thinking about the virgin birth of Christ, but what actually lies behind the virgin birth of Christ, and it's stated very clearly in the text, what lies behind the virgin birth of Christ is a virgin conception. And that's what's critical. It's important for us to understand that the virgin birth is the miracle that really relies upon the virgin conception. And that all of this is important for us to understand what kind of birth, what kind of entrance into this world did in fact the Son of God partake of. And all of that is important ultimately for the reason why God sent his son into this world that he might be the redeemer. So the main question this morning is, yes, the fact of the virgin birth, but but what made the virgin birth actually the great miracle that it was? And why is this miracle so important for the sake of the story of redemption? Now, I want to point out three things then that we're going to say, three things we're going to look at about the virgin conception. First, the very fact that this is the miracle. This is the miracle of the virgin birth. Secondly, we're going to point out that this point of conception is the very point of incarnation. And that has tremendous ramifications. And then thirdly, to understand that this point of conception properly translates into the incarnate Son of God being truly the seed of the woman 
prophesied at the very beginning of the scriptural story. And that's what we're going to look at then. Uh, the first part relating to the supernaturalness of what God does. Uh, the second uh, relating to the, the, the very thing of the incarnation itself and its implications in terms of where the incarnation began. And then thirdly, just why it is that we can truly say that Christ is the seed of the woman. Now, as I've already stated, but first and foremost, it's a virgin conception, which is the miracle that is the foundation of the virgin birth. Now, as we get into this, right away I want to talk about the human predicament. Uh, that has been the second theme all the way through this series, the incarnation, but as well the human predicament. Uh, what is significant about the virgin birth and the human predicament? Well, it has to do with, with respect to the human predicament. Human beings, in fact, are prone to be easily deceived, easily conned, easily manipulated to believe in all sorts of spiritually foolish ideas and not only spiritually foolish ideas, but spiritually dangerous and evil ideas while they reject the supernatural truth of God. Which is to say that the human predicament is its religious gullibility. It's tremendous religious gullibility. In fact, it's disastrous religious gullibility. That's the core of the human predicament. The most devastating aspect of the fall is not that human beings became irreligious, not that human beings rejected religion, but that human beings rejected the true religion and the right religion and have embraced every sort of wrong religious and spiritual idea to lives of foolishness, but also to lives of despicable evil. Now, how do we know this? It's because the Bible tells us that this is true. I want us to think about a passage in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 44, between verses 9 and 20, the prophet there is declaring the foolishness of idolatry. Now, the, the default setting for the human race religiously, by the way, is the worship of idols. It has been the most persistent, most common form of religious expression for the last 6,000 years that we can understand human history. Idolatry. The worship of God as an idol, the worship of an idol as God or gods. So here's what Isaiah says. The passage describes the actual making of an idol, what a carpenter does. Uh, he takes wood. It could be cedar, cypress, or oak, the text says. Now, then it goes on to describe that with part of this wood that he's gotten, he bakes, he builds a fire, and he warms himself, and he bakes bread, or he roasts meat. Then with the other part of the wood, he actually makes it into a god, Isaiah says, his idol. He falls down before it. He worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. Then Isaiah goes on to say in verse 20 about that person who does this, which is in fact typical of the religious orientation of the vast majority of people who've ever lived in this world. He goes on to say, he feeds on ashes. A deluded heart 
has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, mean, or even realize, is there not a lie in my right hand? Now, Paul comments on this, this persistent, I almost use the term vegetative state, (laughs) but when you think about true spirituality, the human race is locked into a vegetative state where it can't see the truth, it can't understand the truth, and it doesn't even desire to understand the truth. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived from what God has made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they refused to honor Him as God or to give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then Paul sums it up this way in verse 22, 23. Claiming to be wise. Now notice he's speaking about, we're going to see here, idolatry. Those who are idolaters claim to be wise spiritually. Although claiming to be wise, they they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, in the center of the human predicament is this, this perverse bent toward deception in religious matters. The ordinary person, no matter how smart he might be, is so open to believe all sorts of ideas which are silly and foolish, but also evil and tragic. We know from the history of Israel, and you know the Jewish history, of course, is peopled and populated with, with all sorts of ordinary and extraordinary people, But time and time again, they fell into idolatry. Even though they had before them the true knowledge of the true God, there were generations that rejected the true knowledge of the true God. And what did they do? They lapsed into, they fell into, no, they willingly went into idolatry. And then Psalm 106, verse 38. Listen to these words of indictment. They poured out innocent blood the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. That's the human predicament. People are so prone to believe the wrong things spiritually. At the same time, they will reject God's true supernatural activity in this world such as the virgin conception that lies behind the virgin birth of Christ. Now, thinking then about the virgin birth, as a supreme miracle of what God has done, it leads us to recognize that there are implications with respect to the virgin birth as one of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. First, 
The virgin birth and the miracle, the miraculous conception that lies behind it, is a faith test. It is a test as to whether we truly believe in the, the character of the Bible as a supernatural book. Uh, so I went to an online blogger. There's a website that I know that will have at times fairly orthodox Christian sentiments, but it's also a, a blog site that will carry the, the reasoning of skeptics and so-so Christians and all sorts of people, sort of a free thinkers religious forum. So this is what a writer said. All I did was Google, who doesn't believe in the, in the virgin birth or reasons for not believing in the virgin birth? And so this popped up. This writer says, here are the reasons why we should reject the so-called miracle of the virgin birth. Number one, it's not in John's gospel. Secondly, it's not in Mark's gospel. So two of the four gospels don't have any word about the virgin birth of Christ at all. And then thirdly, Paul doesn't refer to it directly. So the claim is, because Paul doesn't refer to it, Paul knows nothing about it. And it's not mentioned in anywhere else in the New Testament. It's only mentioned in two books of the Bible, Matthew and Luke. Therefore, it must have been invented by later Christians to complete the biographical narrative of Jesus. We've got his life, we've got his ending, now let's, let's create something and make up something about his birth. Conclusion, this guy says, this is a fabrication. That's why he doesn't believe in the virgin birth. But actually, what's so clear about all of his reasons is that he doesn't really consider Christianity to be a thoroughgoing supernatural religion in which God enters into human history and, and, and does a supernatural redemption of human beings. And in order to make it clear so people don't mess up the message so they really understand it, he inspires a supernatural book to declare this story. It's not a book you can read and pick and choose. If you read this book and pick and choose what you think is and isn't truth, you're basically saying that somehow in some way you are as wise as the Holy Spirit. Somehow you're saying that you've got a vantage point from which you can judge the Word of God, which claims to be the Word of God, and you can determine what is and isn't true. Well, if that's the case, we should all bow down and worship you because then you would be the guy who would give us infallible truth about the Bible. Of course, see, that's the tendency always that people will reject the true knowledge of the true God and they will put something else in its place as their religious center. And this skeptic, this he's not saying he's not a Christian. <laughs> That's the crazy thing. He's just saying he doesn't believe in the virgin birth. And so there we have to say, well, well you have enshrined your own reason as the God you follow. You're worshiping at the shrine of reason as opposed to being willing to accept that true Christianity is a supernatural Christianity and a supernatural story with a supernatural book all the way through. There's a second implication, though, about the miracle of the virgin birth. And it has to do with the nature of the miracles that we find revealed to us in Scripture. Some miracles are miracles of divine providence. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, here's one. R.C. Sproul passes away on December 14th. A month earlier, before R.C. was sickened in the hospital, uh, Ligonier Ministries was planning 
the next month of their uh, daily podcast, where R.C. Sproul's teaching was going to be broadcast. A month ahead, they planned for what was going to happen on the 15th of December. What they chose was R.C.'s teachings about the reality of heaven. He passes away on Thursday. Friday morning, the broadcast in the providence of God is R.C. Sproul speaking. You hear his voice describing for all those who are podcast followers, for all of his wide and vast audience, the very joys and reality of heaven which he himself was then experiencing. Now that's the providence of God. That's an amazing thing that that nobody orchestrated that. No one knew when R.C. was going to pass. No one knew anything like that. But God providentially arranged it so that the very morning that R.C.'s in heaven, his audience world would hear his voice testifying again to what God has done in saving his people with a certainty of the reality of heaven. An amazing thing. There are all sorts of providences like that that Christians count as miracles. Again and again and again, we have prayers, amazing prayers answered in terms of God's very, very particular timing. But that's not the kind of miracle that the virgin birth happens to be. This is not a special miracle of timing. This is the other kind of miracle that we find in the Bible, which is a miracle of creation. What happens with respect to the virgin birth is like what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness. Some scientists who are Christians will say, you know, crossing the Red Sea, we actually know that natural phenomena can cause great bodies of water to part. Yeah. So maybe it was just a miracle of divine providence that the Israelites were there at that particular point when the Red Sea parted, and it was improvident for the, for the Egyptian soldiers when they came behind because the Red Sea came back together. So, okay, maybe. But 40 years of getting manna from heaven was not a miracle of providence. It was a miracle of divine creation where God every day fed his people in the wilderness by a miraculous creation. And you go on then to think about in the miracles of Jesus in his life. The wedding at Cana. Water was transformed into wine without Grapes being the intermediary from fermentation process. It was an instantaneous creation and transformation. And the conception of Jesus was a miracle of creation. Uh, There was nothing else that could take place other than God miraculously doing something there. The text says so. Uh, that's what Luke records. Mary raises the question in verse 34, I'm going to have a child. How can this be since I am a virgin? And, and, I, and I love the, the older English King James, since I know not a man. I mean, that is just crystal clear. I know not a man. It can't happen in my present state. And Gabriel responds by saying that, the Holy Spirit would come upon her with the power of the Most High. A God intervention. 
God doing something. God creating something. God bringing about by His creative power a miraculous conception that otherwise would never have taken place. Now, when somebody finds this hard to believe, how is this harder to believe than any other of the miraculous stories that we find in the Bible or the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? But here's the thing. There are people who claim to be within the camp of Christians who have rejected the virgin birth. They have found it too much to swallow, too difficult to believe. Why? Because it is the bent of a human predicament religiously to reject all aspects of the true knowledge of the true God and His revelation and yet believe all sorts of other things in its place. Real Christianity, true Christians, trust in a Redeemer who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, the second thing I want us to appreciate about this virgin conception is that it marks the beginning of the incarnation. The very beginning of the incarnation. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, we have John declaring that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So, clearly, the incarnation is that fact He dwelt among us. God entered into time and space. He entered into human history. He truly became a human being with a human experience. He became man. But when? When precisely, when exactly did he become a human being? The answer is stated for us twice. Matthew's Gospel, Luke's Gospel. In Matthew, chapter 1, verse 20, The angel in a dream says to Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Conception. And then in Luke's Gospel, Gabriel says in verses 30 and 31, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And again, as we said, when Mary responds, well, how can this happen since I'm a virgin? Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and the power of the Most High overshadows you. And that's why this child is going to be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, both Matthew and Luke agree and pinpoint that the actual beginning of the incarnation is not at birth. It's not any month prior to birth. It's at the very beginning, which is at conception. That's the point that God enters into human history, into the human race, into his own humanity, at the very point of conception. The same historical point where every one of you began your existence in this world that's the same point at which the son of god took to himself a true human body and a reasonable soul and became truly one of us now what does that mean for the value of human life 
the implications here are profound. Since conception marks the actual beginning of the incarnation, we have all of human life set forth as sacred. All of human life set forth as sacred. The true humanity, the true human life of Jesus begins at conception. That determines how we're supposed to understand what is truly human. We have to confess, we have to acknowledge that full humanity begins at conception. Therefore, all of embryonic life is sacred. All of fetal life is sacred. Every day, hour, and moment of prenatal life is sacred. And that carries with us, with it, the further implication, the further position to be able to say, salvation comes to every stage of human life. And that includes prenatal life. In the life to come, out of the human race, there will be those redeemed by Christ who never saw the light of day. Not because they were innocent, but rather because in God's sovereign love and concern to redeem humanity, they were joined to Christ by God's sovereign grace and mercy. This is such an important reminder that the work of Christ in his life and death and resurrection and even now at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, this work of Christ is on behalf of every stage of human life, every aspect of humanity, every sort of human being. Now, can you see how this bears upon the human predicament? We know that the greatest evil in the world is the evil that we find that people perpetrate against each other. Uh, we know that the human heart motivates people to prize and to value their own particular life above the lives of others, uh, even to the harm of others. Uh, ancient Israel, when it had those, those awful episodes of defecting from the true God into idolatry, uh, this, was, this, this brought them to the point where they were willing to take their own flesh and blood, their own babies, and sacrifice them as blood sacrifices to false gods. So it's not surprising in our own day that the evil in the human heart has turned against life in the womb. The most dangerous place in America and even the most dangerous place in the womb today, in the world today, is the womb of a pregnant woman. The likelihood of death occurring by the intentionality of human instruments, by human beings willing to take life. The, the, the possibility is far greater that people will die in the womb than they'll ever die in the course of living out their normal life. We see that the human predicament is wrapped up in this. What is sacred to God is so easily not sacred to human beings.
we see how, how long the world lay in sin and error pining until he appeared. And because of his appearing, because of the incarnation, because of the incarnation beginning at conception, we are able to see the soul's true worth. See how vital the story of a son of righteousness who has risen with healing in his wings is. And how much we need to pray this prayer. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Cast out our sins and enter in and be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us, O Lord Emmanuel. Finally, the virgin conception is also what rightly qualifies Jesus as the seed of the woman. The phrase, the seed of the woman, is unusual. Um, and yet it comes out of the earliest story in the Bible. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, we have the tragedy of our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinning against God. So when God confronts them with their sin, when he also at the same time confronts the tempter, the serpent, who's the personification of Satan, uh, he begins by cursing the adversary. He does so with these words, Genesis 3, 15. And I will put enmity, which means hostility and conflict. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. So the curse upon the devil, the curse upon Satan, has also been called the very first promise of the gospel, because it is. The curse upon the Satan is essentially this, that Satan is one that God's going to send someone against. That God's going to send a champion and a redeemer who's going to conquer the devil and his work. So the verse states specifically that God's going to establish his hostility uh, between the serpent and the woman and between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. But then it goes on to say that it's the woman's seed or the seed of the woman who will go directly against the serpent and against the serpent's head in order to bruise it, but in the context it means to crush it, while the serpent, on the other hand, going directly against the seed of the woman, will only be able to render a wound that in itself is never fatal. In other words, the serpent and the serpent's work is going to be destroyed. The redeemer, the seed of the woman, will suffer harm but not be destroyed the seed of the woman is going to be the champion. So normally in ancient Israel, what was spoken of in terms of all of this, not the promise itself, but generally speaking, was the seed of a man. And it was well understood that it's the man who presents the seed part in terms of biological reproduction. And then the offspring of man and woman were called the seed. So often in your Bible where the word offspring occurs, it's actually the word seed, the same word that we find in Genesis 3.15. And I hear that seed who's hiccuping now, that precious little seed. But this phrase, the seed of the woman, finds its ultimate fulfillment in the virgin conception because it highlights and fulfills the idea that Jesus in his humanity is truly the seed of a woman, truly coming forth from 
the virgin's womb. But there's more than just the significance of prophecy being fulfilled, that Christ properly bears the title, the seed of the woman. There's a redemptive significance to Jesus coming into the world this way, that he's conceived in the womb of a virgin. Let me paraphrase what the great theologian uh, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield has said on this particular matter. What is the redemptive significance of the virgin birth? He says the necessity of the virgin birth of Jesus comes to its complete manifestation in its relationship to the doctrine of redemption. The Bible teaches a redemption that is provided specifically as a redemption from sin. Now, in order for Jesus to redeem men from sin, it's imperative that the Redeemer himself should not be involved in sin. For that reason, no one who was himself under the curse of sin could ever atone for the sin of others. No one who owed the law its extreme penalty for himself could pay this penalty for others. And certainly, every natural member of the race of Adam rests under the curse of Adam's sin, with the penalty and the curse hanging over him. If the Son of God came into the world in order to save sinners, it was absolutely necessary that he should become incarnate in a manner that would leave him standing, so far as his own responsibility is concerned, outside the condition of sin that involves the whole course of the human race. And so Warfield concludes, that is as much to say that the redemptive work of the Son of God depends upon his supernatural birth. We can clarify that a little bit further. The virgin birth tells us what Jesus did not share with the rest of us. He had no human father. He had no fallen nature. There was in Jesus no sinful corruption. He had no inheritance of Adam's sin. He had neither the corruption nor the guilt of Adam's sin. None of that was imputed against him. Jesus came to this world free from all aspects of original sin. Thus, he's qualified to be the second Adam. His humanity was a miraculous creation by God. It was a sinless humanity. And for that reason, although the Lord Jesus has been tempted in every respect just as we are, he was without sin in every respect. Therefore, he could be all that John the Baptist called him to be, the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God, who could take away the sin of the world. Yet, here's the problem. It is the very nature of the human predicament for people to deny everything about man's fallen nature and the depth of that fallen nature. People are blind to the great reason for this season. People are blind to their own deceptive hearts. Uh, The thing that is needed, most needed, is for this human blindness to give way to a true humility in which people would recognize their need for Christ. And so, the Christmas hymn says, how silently, how silently this wondrous gift is given. So God in a like manner, imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, the dear Christ 
enters in. The human predicament has led human beings in a religious bent that leads to the embracing of the foolish and the tragic and the evil. But God has cared for this fallen humanity. He has sent his son into this world. And so we look to this great story and the songs that we sing and celebrate with respect to this great story. And we're reminded again and again of these great redemptive truths. We look at Jesus, and we're able to say, as the hymn writer says, good Christians fear. For sinners here, the silent word is pleading. Nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Let's pray. So, Lord God, our Father, it pleased you to send your Son into the world in this way. For this we thank you, and for this we praise you. Thank you for redeeming us and freeing us from the human predicament that we might have a meek soul and a humble heart where the dear Christ has entered in. Thank you for Jesus. In his name, amen.